Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who developed a cancer that is most common in children, so she ended up being treated on a pediatric ward. Her companions throughout her treatment were children who taught her the value of life, so much so that she has dedicated her life to their cause. My guest on the podcast today is Anne Graham, and this is her story. You're very, very welcome to the show, Anne. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. A lot of our guests develop an illness, which then leads to a cause, and that's what happened to you. But the interesting thing is you developed an illness that puts you in a very different place in terms of the medical system. And without giving too much more away, I'll let you tell the story. Thank you. Thanks for for having me and thanks for talking to me about our story. And I I call it our story because it's it's not just mine. And there are lots of kids that are really suffering with this disease. And if it uh, takes this awkward 43-year-old, you know, to to have this cancer to shine a light on the on the kids that I didn't know existed prior, then I would I would do it again. So thank you for for having me and thank you for listening to this story about osteosarcoma and the kids that it affects. So how gosh, for for me, I was uh, 43 years old and I was a runner. I was training for a marathon and my leg kept hurting as I was training. I thought, okay, well, you know, fair enough. I guess I'm 43. I think should start hurting by now. And um, it got to the point where it was waking me up at night. And I had a, a, a good friend who's a physician who said, you can endure a lot of things, but if something's waking you up in the middle of the night, there's something wrong. So listening to that sage advice, I, I thought, well, I, I think I better go to the doctor because I, I, I can't take it anymore. The pain is really quite severe. So I went to a, a sports medicine doctor in the neighborhood and she barely looked at my leg. I was talking to the back of her head most of the time that I was in her office and she said, well, you know, I think you're just training too hard. So just take a break for a while. And I said, you know, I don't think it's that because I've, I've been an athlete my, my life and uh, thus far. And she said, no, I'm, that's what it is. You know, if it's not better in a couple of weeks, then you can come back and see me. And I thought to myself, well, that'd be fine. But will you see me if, if I come back? Because <laughs> I don't, I was thinking to myself, gosh, you didn't see me this whole time I've been here on the table. So I, of course, it didn't go away, came back. And uh, I was missed that this series of events kept reoccurring over the next nine months. So I was diagnosed from with everything from training too hard, compartment syndrome, IT band, running on the wrong side of the road, a stress fracture, you name it. <laughs> That's what I had until finally the stress fracture one seemed to be the one that, that she was sticking with. And I had a very busy weekend the Monday after this very busy weekend on my crutches. I couldn't put any weight on it on Monday morning. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. So I reached for my crutches and crutched into her office. And I said, I need an MRI. 
And she said, well, and we had had this discussion over many months. And finally, I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving. And this is very out of character for me. I'm perhaps overly patient. And ultimately, this, the pain was so bad and I couldn't stand and I was scared. And so I went in her office and I said, I, I need an MRI. And she said, well, you know, I don't know if insurance. I said, I don't care. I will give you cash now. I need this MRI. And so she said, okay, well, let's, let's get you scheduled. So I go into the MRI machine and I was in there for three hours being pushed in and pulled out and different experts coming in. And I thought, gosh, what's going on in that booth over there? This is taking a long time. So finally they let me stand up, get out of the machine and stand up. And I said, okay, you know, thanks. And they said, well, we're going to need you to, to, to see your doctor. And I said, okay, I'll make an appointment. And, and the radiology technician put her hand on my shoulder and said, no, she needs to see you now. And I said, but it's like 530. I, she doesn't work at, any, at this time of the day. And she, kept, she had kept her hand on my shoulder. And she said, she said, no, she's waiting for you now. So I, and her office was across town. So I had to drive across town. And I'm driving past past our house, and I had, I called my husband, and I said, he said, oh, how'd the MRI go? And I said, well, I'm headed over to see the doctor now, and I had this sort of waver in my voice, and he knew it from three really difficult pregnancies. He knew that voice, and he just goes, I'll see you there, drive safely, and he hung up. So he he met me there when I walked into the doctor's office. You know, she had the X-ray up in the office. And I, all the lights were off except for her office and the x-ray box. And I went, that's cancer. Like she didn't say anything. I just saw it. And I, I had this tumor that looked like the state of South Carolina as, as an outline. And I, I just, I, I didn't even, she said, well, and I said, no, that's cancer. And I left like that was, <laughs> that was it. And so the next day, we I looked for an orthopedic oncologist, went to this orthopedic oncologist's office, and same thing happened. He couldn't get the, the CD that my x-ray was on to work. So he was so frustrated. I mean, it was just an overwhelming moment of frustration for him. And I'm sitting on the table in a half a paper gown, and he didn't take one look at me. He just kept being so upset about this disc not working. And finally, he had the IT person come in and I'm, I know there's cancer in my leg. Nobody had to tell me this. Like I knew it and I just needed to know what do I do now? What's next? So we, I, I don't even know if he, I don't remember if he ended up getting that disc to work, but we left. And I said to my husband as, as we were walking out, I, I'm, he is not touching me. And he said, I agree. So I were driving away and a friend of mine happened to call and she said, and she said, what's going on? You know, she heard my voice too. She said, what's going on? And um, I told her and she said, can you get to New York City tomorrow? And I said, yes, what for? And she said, just go to Sloan Kettering. They'll take care of everything and just be there first thing in the morning. So I did. And it, it was you know, a scary again, because I'm walking into a cancer center in New York City. And my my now orthopedic oncologist met me that day. And he I was sitting on the table, and he had a low uh, rolling stool. So he was sitting below me, his chest was at my knee. 
and he's a big man. And he put his hand on my knee and he said, tell me what's going on. And I, <laughs> like I am right now, I lost it. I started crying and I looked over at my husband and I just get a motion for him to tell him because I couldn't, it was the first time somebody was listening to me in nine months. And that, so that was, that was how my, my diagnosis finally happened. He said, well, really, we don't know what it is. We have to take you into surgery. We have to do a biopsy and we'll, we'll know what it is once, once that happens. So we found out what it was and I ended up being treated by his colleague in pediatrics and age notwithstanding, 43 years old, I was treating the Pediatric Cancer Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Well, first of all, I'm really, really sorry that it happened like that. I'm really, really sorry that your doctors didn't see you in in those nine months. That is not a good indictment of our profession. However, I can understand how it happens because a 43-year-old does not develop osteosarcoma, except that you did. And this is true of so many stories of patients who've developed an illness that is unusual or atypical or presents with vague symptoms. And that's a great lesson for many of our medical students who may be listening to this. And you you tell the story well. I can hear the emotion. I can understand the emotion. What happened next? So <laughs> this is kind of a funny thing. It, it, I had to call my original treating physician and and ask her for all of the records and the x-rays and everything. And so I called this office, which I, I had become a familiar fixture in because I kept coming back going, it's still, it hurts terribly. So when I called, they said, hey, Anne, how are you? We, we haven't seen you. Where, where have you been? And I'm like, seriously? I'm at Sloan Kettering. I have cancer in my leg. And they were gobsmacked. There was, what? I don't know what's happening. I said, well, I'm actually calling to get my medical records. And um, did my doctor not tell you? And they said, oh, she left. Like she went, she <laughs> so she left, she left the institution. And um, my husband's, my husband was really upset. He said, you know, if she would have called, you know, she would have figured this out sooner. We'd be farther along in treatment. We'd, we'd probably have better odds. The odds, if you look up uh, an adult with osteosarcoma, any a kid with osteosarcoma, anybody with osteosarcoma, the odds are not good, especially if you've had it and you've been misdiagnosed for so long. So we very deliberately decided that we would put all anger aside and all feelings of being cast aside ourselves and and you know all, all of those feelings that feeling betrayed by my doctor, all of those things. We decided to put it aside and embrace what I, I know many medical students learn in school. Uh, when you hear galloping, first assume horses, not zebras. So we embraced the zebra, <laughs> like the zebra idea. So my crutches, which were my uh, constant companions for the next eight, 18 months, were zebras and my friends sent zebra quilts and and zebra shirts and zebra you know socks and so I was the zebra because I was definitely the zebra coming down the hall and while I have no interest in shaming my treating physician my first treating physician in any way because I was a zebra 
So it was our way of just kind of getting through it and being okay with, with where we were. I love that notion that you're a zebra. You, you had a sense of humor even then, and you have now, which is fantastic. May well have helped you a lot in the time that you had with this illness. So I think I read somewhere that you ended up on a pediatric ward, because presumably that's where the expertise is, because this is a, an illness that tends to affect children. What was that like for you? Here you are, 43, marathon runner, mom of three kids in amongst the children. You know, I didn't know how I felt about it at first. I, I remember sitting, you know, in those after hours moments when you're, when you get the bad news that <laughs> it seems to happen you know, in those after hours moments that that's the time reserved for you who's getting the bad news. So we our first exposure in the pediatric cancer center. It was six o'clock at night on a Monday, I think. And it was quiet. And we're looking around at these playrooms and these beautiful lights and this fish tank and, and all of this fun stuff. And, you know, it was very lovely, but it was a cancer center for kids. And I think there, there's a, this is hard to look at. Kids with cancer is hard to look at. And I think many people think this is something that's taken care of. This is something that I don't have to worry about. This is something that doesn't need funding. This, is, this isn't really a thing. It's very rare that a child would get cancer. It's not rare as a whole, as, as, as a pediatric community, cancer community, this is not rare. Too many kids are dying of cancer. So to be sitting in a space of pediatric cancer where they're treated, it was, gosh, it was really alarming and it kind of put me off balance really. So I then went in and saw my my pediatric oncologist and got all of the news about how this was going to be really hard. You, he said to me, you'll have to quit your job. You will be disabled for the rest of your life. Here's here's your treatment plan. And uh, kind of goes across the timeline. And right about here, which is about the middle of the chart, we are going to have to decide whether the cancer is killing you faster or the treatment is. And you will have to have transfusions You'll, you know, just the whole, the whole thing just kind of unfolded out of his mouth. And I remember somewhat ridiculously looking, looking back now, knowing what I know now, thinking, you don't know me. I'm, I love my job. I love my life. I'm not one of these people who's going to lay down and and take this. I'm going to fight this and I'm going to win this. And you can't tell me what this is going to be like. However, <laughs> he was right. I, you know, a couple of months in, I couldn't lift my head off the pillow to answer a phone call. I would have to lay the phone on my head. Like this, the treatment for this disease is, at the time we had 30-year-old treatments. Now they're 40-year-old treatments for this type of cancer. The first line of treatment is they, they remove the bone that's affected. So you, in my case, it was in my leg. And I remember going into surgery and him saying, we're going to try to save your leg, but it's possible that you wake up and you out of in recovery and you might be an amputee. If we can save it, we will, but, but we might not be able to save it. I mean, this is, 
this is extreme, you know, this is extreme and, and you can't dream it. But in terms of a couple of months into treatment, I was so grateful that I was treated with the kids. They were the most brilliant, tenacious, faithful, hopeful companions you could have on the journey. And I remember saying to, to my husband once, I said, you know, this whole experience has been like climbing a mountain and thinking you're going to find this wise old man at the top of it, but it's actually a child. The child is the wise old man at the top of the mountain. And I knew this, I knew this for sure. After a couple of experiences, one was, <laughs> there was this day and, and we were waiting to see the team. And so my husband and I are sitting by the fish tank and I'm on my phone and I'm scrolling through Facebook. And a friend of mine that I, I, she's a dear friend and she's beautiful. She's inside and out beautiful. So it's her birthday. And she was saying, well, it's my birthday. And, you know, here's to more wrinkles and gray hair. And I'm not as fabulous as I once was, but here we go. You know, thanks for the birthday wishes. And at the same time, there was a conversation happening next to me. A, a, a boy that I was being treated with sat down and um, he had just come back from his Make-A-Wish trip and he had gone to Brazil and had got, gotten to go into the Amazon and had this in incredible experience. And so he's telling me about it. And in the meantime, a friend of his came and sat down next to, next to him. And so we're all three having a conversation then and he... and. He's like, oh, you know, how was your Make-A-Wish trip? And he's telling him the same story. This was, it was amazing. And at the end of his story, he says, so, so what, what are you going to do for your trip? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And he goes, what do you mean you're not going to do it? You have to do it. It's, it's amazing. Like, and he starts giving him tips and here's, here's some ideas. And he goes, no, they, they can't give me, they can't give me what I want. And he goes, no, 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 you got you to gotta give them a try. Like they can, do, they can do a lot of things and it's really special. And, and um, he goes, no, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And um, my friend, the boy says, well, what do you want anyway? And uh, so I'm, I'm totally in on this conversation now because as bad as I felt, I'm like, listen, kid, whatever it is, I'm getting it for you. Like I, he was so, he was so down and sure that there was no hope for him, that something could be planned for him that he would enjoy. And he said, I want to go back to back to basketball practice. I want to go back to school. I want to, I want to not have my parents have to give up so much for, to be with me in treatment. And I want to turn 12. And at the same time, here's my friend complaining about turning 43. And cursing her gray hair and wrinkles and creaky knees. And here I was losing my knee, losing my leg. And here's this boy who's hoping beyond hope that he can live another year. And I've had the blessing of living 30 more than he could even hope for at this point. And in that moment, I... I thought, I, I will be grateful for my age. I will be grateful for my wrinkles. I will be grateful for my gray hair. I will be grateful for my life, the suffering, the joy, the pain, 
the ugliness, the beauty, all of it. It was it was such a moment. And if I had to get cancer to have that moment, apart from my family suffering because I was, I will take it. That was an extraordinary thing that happened there. That boy didn't make it, but I did. And while that gives you a certain degree of survivor's guilt, I decided that what I really needed to have was survivor's responsibility and survivor's purpose. And ultimately, shouldn't we all have survivor's purpose? Because we've all survived something to get to where we are today. And if everybody who went through something and survived something helped somebody who was also going through something and recognized their suffering along the way, we'd be a better place for it. So lose the guilt because you've done nothing wrong. And guilt is an appropriate emotion if you've done something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. But with what I was allowed to have in the form of my life, I could do something really right. I almost feel like I want to say something, but I'm not going to, because I think you've said it beautifully. You've you painted a picture of what that was like, just in that story with those boys talking about what they wanted and their aspirations for life. And you're right, we should celebrate every single second of life that we have. You've gone on to do wonderful things, and that's where I want to go next. You've gone on to make a difference in a really dramatic way. Tell us about that. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate the those very kind and truly generous words. I don't feel like we've accomplished enough. We have so much to do. We have so much to do. We we are still dealing in osteosarcoma in in 40-year-old treatments and there's there is hope on the horizon. There are physicians and researchers who have dedicated their lives to making sure that better happens for their patients and their patient families but still here we are you know really until we until we have kinder treatments a cure until we have better for the kids who are suffering from this cancer i i don't feel accomplished at all part one and and part two, what we have accomplished is clearly and truly a team effort. We we are at my organization, I, I even shudder to say my organization, the organization that I founded is really made up of a community that we ask a lot of. As much as we ask of our community, they give more. And here's what we ask them. We ask them, whatever magic it is you have, do that for kids with osteosarcoma. Bring that for osteosarcoma kids. You don't have to be a researcher or a physician. You don't have to have a degree. You just have to show up with whatever it is that brings you joy, whatever it is you're good at, whatever it is you do in your daily life. Just do that or a piece of it for these kids who are suffering greatly, who lose their limbs and too often their lives to this cancer. So it's truly and honestly a a community effort. We have over 200 volunteers. We have a small staff. We 
get a whole lot done in a very organized and um, deliberate way, but we do it together. And you don't have to fill out an application to be a part of our organization. You just have to do what you do. And as long as your intention is joined with our intention, as long as your mission is the same as our mission, as long as you are for what we're for, you're in. Come come on in. Like we we've got a lot of work to do to make it better. Lots of people will be listening to this and saying, I want in. How do they get in? What is the work that you're doing? What are the causes that you're supporting? What is the research that you want to see done? How can we help you make a difference? So at MIB, MIB stands for Make It Better. So how we make it better for kids with cancer is through hope, faith, and love. And we call these things research, education, and support. So for me, the hope is in research. We need the research to happen. We, along with our entire community, this is, you know, not one of us is, uh, you know, the one with the really deep pockets. It's all of us giving what we can to meaningfully fund osteosarcoma-specific research. We fund research, we support the researchers, and we share their research. And we ask them to share their research as well, which takes us to our next one. We call this education, but for me, this is the faith part. So our education components are an annual conference, which brings together all parties under one roof. So as far as I know, we're the only medical research conference in the world that brings everybody under one roof, the doctors, researchers, surgeons, patients themselves, the patient families, and advocates all under one roof, all working together. There aren't any, the patients are going to come over here and the doctors will be over here. We're all under one roof. And as a result of that kind of everybody all constituents in this osteosarcoma party under one roof, we have funded more research and it doesn't all come out of MIB pockets. There are other advocates there that go, oh, I heard this guy talk. He's doing great work. I want to fund that. Great. It doesn't have to filter through MIB. It just has to get done. So we have uh, that factor conference, which is just, it's fun and we feed everybody really, really well. This is not a medical conference with an apple and a granola bar. Like we throw down on the food because we think the real work happens in the in-between spaces. It happens at the bar after dinner. It happens walking from breakfast to a, a session. That's when the good stuff happens. We also put together what we call a testing and research directory. So an osteosarcoma patient goes through many surgeries, many tumor removals. We have created, along with our scientific advisory team, this directory, which allows the patient family and even a researcher or a physician to look at this document and go, okay, I have, I have this tumor sample. Uh, does the patient need it or do I, as the patient, need it to inform research or to inform a personal treatment plan? And this document allows them to have that information and it allows them to accomplish one of those two goals with their biodata. We have Osteobytes, which is a weekly webinar and podcast. 
And this is a platform where researchers, physicians, really anybody who's working in this space that's doing meaningful work that can provide information on osteosarcoma, what is your research, what is your innovation, what kind of hope is coming from what you're doing. So that's, uh, that is a library of videos that lives on YouTube. So if you're newly diagnosed or not, if you're a survivor, you can go to this library and find something that you might need, some information, some hope, some way to be involved. Uh, we have a book that is it's over 100 pages, and it's called Osteosarcoma, From Our Families to Yours. It was written by osteosarcoma families for osteosarcoma families with the help of our researchers, physicians, and advocates all uh, working together on this and our scientific advisory team. That is a really great book that we believe helps us all to become part of a more informed patient community, which is an easier patient to treat, one that's well-informed. So this book has now been translated into Chinese and Spanish. And it's all available for free. You can get it free download off of our website, or you can request uh, an information packet. And these information packets contain the book in whichever language you choose, as well as resources from MIB agents and our partner organizations who are doing really great work and are are able to help a new patient or or a patient who's been undergoing treatment for quite some time. Um, We also have a brand new component of our website where a patient who has osteosarcoma can find a clinical trial in under 60 seconds. And if you've ever gone on a clinical trials page and searched for a clinical trial, you know this is a really difficult task. uh, It's really difficult. So this connects with, with the clinical trials search engine from the National Institute of Health, and it helps you find a, a trial very quickly. The last of the three pillars that support our three-legged stool is support. I call this love. And this is a, a component that is made up by different programs. So from the start of diagnosis, we have that packet. We call it the osteosarcoma resource packet that gets into the patient's hands. They know what they're looking at. They know what their disease is like and kind of what to expect. We have a gamer agent program where we have kids who have survived this disease or siblings of those who have passed, who have gone through a certified peer visitor training program with our licensed clinical social worker. And they game with other kids who have also faced osteosarcoma, either as the patient or the sibling. We have warrior mail, and this anybody can do this. So people across the world even will sign up to be a writer. And we have kids who are in treatment. And we ask our writers to write letters of hope, support, and cheer for the kids who are in treatment. So each month we send out a packet. It has a picture of the child, their age, what their hobbies are, and where they're at in treatment. and. The people who get that packet write the letters of hope and support. The letters get sent to MIB agents' headquarters. No addresses are shared. No last names are shared. And then we send those packets out of big packets of mail to each child who who really could use some some uplifting. 
Uh, we have our ambassador agents program. This is a program made up of patient families, a caregiver, a child who survived. And we have a training program. It's called the Ambassador Agent Training Program. It's an eight-hour training program that also our gamer agents go through where they... It's actually a great program for any human actually to go through. You learn what you say, what you don't say, and you what you really learn is to walk into a room, and usually a hospital room, except for in this year of COVID, and the caregiver talks to the caregiver in treatment. Their surviving osteosarcoma kid talks to the talks to the osteosarcoma patient in the bed. And they walk in the room and they give 30 seconds of this is who I am and I was where you are. Tell me how are you? And that's it. That's the problem. They come in with a tote bag full of great treats that you know we we've put together with our junior board and with other surviving caregiving families. What would you would have wanted while you were in treatment? Somebody to walk in with this tote. The feedback we've gotten from this program is. I don't remember what they said. I don't remember what was in that tote. What I know is that it was everything to have somebody walk in a room and say, I was where you are and now I'm here. And what we really ask of our ambassador agents who sign up for this program is to be a vessel into which the child in treatment and the caregiver in treatment can empty their hearts and understand that they are seen and listened to and all of that by somebody who's been there, by somebody who knows and understands. So that's our ambassador agent program. We have a prayer agent program. Doesn't matter what your spiritual practice is, whatever it is, bring it. We have a prayer agent director and she will receive prayer requests from across the world either urgent or ongoing that goes out to the prayer agents and they utilize whatever spiritual practice they have to honor send good vibes send intentions for that for that child in treatment and we also have a list an, an ongoing list of kids who are in treatment and kids who have passed from osteosarcoma and each month first sunday of the month 3 p.m. american eastern standard time Again, we ask whatever your spiritual practice is, light a candle, take a walk in the woods, go to church, temple, synagogue, whatever, and read that list. And that's our way of honoring and remembering and celebrating the kids who have gone through what we have all experienced as well. But you don't need to have experienced it in order to be a prayer agent. We have end-of-life missions. We call this walking them home. So when curative treatment options have been exhausted, we talk to the patient family, and then we have a surviving osteosarcoma child speak with the child who is facing hospice care, and we say, what would you like? And it can be an item of comfort or an entertainment, or it can be an experience. And we plan that together with that child. So those are missions. And then finally, we have healing hearts. And this was started again by an osteosarcoma bereaved parent group. And it's a six-week course on healing your heart from the loss of a child to this specific disease. So we have a maximum of eight 
couples in this Healing Hearts group. And uh, it's a six-week course. And there, it's not just a talk therapy. It's there are actual activities that they that they go through. There's talking, but it's very much guided. And it's very important that the parents who have lost a child to this particular disease are with other families who have lost a child to this particular disease because they get each other's pain. They've seen what each other have seen. And that is its own kind of therapy, just being with people who understand you and what you've been through and your brand of suffering. So that's why I say it's really, this is not all me. This is is by such a long shot, not all me. It's so much more than I could ever hope to accomplish on my own. Yes, I get that. And I, I hear your humility in all of that. But what I see sitting in front of me is somebody who is generous and energetic and optimistic and compassionate. And it occurs to me that looking, listening back to earlier in our conversation, you said the child was the wise one. I can't help feeling that the spirit of each child that, whose life you've touched is now channeling itself through you and others to make a massive difference not just osteosarcoma, but to all the other illnesses. Imagine if this was true of every illness you ever experienced. That's the vision I see. And that's why I so enjoyed our conversation. And it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I have to tell you, I, my own spiritual practice is I have this behind me and on my desk, pictures of all of the kids that have passed from this disease and there's a candle that's lit in front of them. And every day before I sit down to work, I light the candle and I say a prayer and there I ask them to help me, help me today, do what I need to do and guide me and keep me on point and show me how, because this is not, I didn't go to school for it to get a degree in philanthropy or starting a nonprofit like this is not this is not something that I'm tr- that I'm trained for this is I'm an amateur at this it's because of these kids that we've gotten to do what we get to do how we get to help others cross this raging river it's the only way it's these these wise kids that I believe are cheering for us and I believe you know, many times when we've done these end of life missions, we ask, what can we do for you? How can we help? Nine times out of 10, the answer is find a cure. These are kids who are dying and we're saying, what do you want? And they say a cure, even though they know it will not help them. That's what they want. So that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. And I do wish that every illness, everybody who's suffering had a group of people going, we're with you. How can we help? I wish that. And it's a dream. It's a wonderful dream. And I feel that you taking taking us along the path to becoming a reality. And you've said it all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for asking. I'm I'm just beyond thrilled to speak with you and 
it's like you've been through ambassador agent training. You're you're that vessel for somebody to empty their heart into. And I'm sure that's what makes you an excellent physician. Just like my doctor who asked me, tell me what's going on. It's just, and tell me more. It's Those are just the two kindest questions you can ask another human. Tell me more. So thank you. The Health Design Podcast. Sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.